Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to part six of an ongoing and continuing series reviewing the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division's brand new, well, now almost a month old, uh, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Memo, or I should say updated uh, back on, uh, I believe, April 31st, last day of April, was when it was announced uh, at ECI in Dallas, I believe, uh, the Assistant Attorney General uh, made the announcement. Um, we've been going through, if you haven't listened to the prior podcast, uh, parts one through five, um, we've been talking about different uh, sections, the introduction, uh, talking a little bit about what this memo is, where it came from, um, and uh, now we're up to uh, part six, where I'm going to cover uh, third-party management and mergers and acquisitions which is pages six through eight of the memoranda. Uh, a link to where the memoranda can be found will be in the show notes, as always. Uh, these two topics really fall into an area uh, that is uh, has to be, I think, looked through the prism of, again, where this guidance comes from and what the primary purpose uh, of this guidance is. Uh, versus sort of how we adopt it as a standard. I talked a little bit about this in one of the earlier parts of this series. And what I mean by that is uh, this document comes from the uh, Department of Justice. It comes from the prosecutors who are going to be looking at uh, a compliance program in circumstances where there's an allegation of criminal wrongdoing. Um, and that uh, is something we always have to consider when we're looking at the guidance and considering the guidance and uh, helps us understand why they focus on uh, certain aspects that they do. Uh, one of these things that we need to think about when we talk about third-party uh, management's due, due diligence and, and M&A um, uh, uh, compliance uh, oversight is that uh, historically, this document comes out of the fraud section of the Department of Justice. And those prosecutors uh, prosecute many, many different types of fraud crimes, uh, but probably what they're most famous for, if, uh, if you will, is uh, prosecuting FCPA violations over the last uh, 20 years uh, since uh, uh, amendments were made and, and the prosecution of FCPA really ramped up uh, around 2000. And concern about third-party due diligence, third-party management, and uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, directly come from uh, those FCPA investigations and cases. Uh, as, as we all know, uh, particularly in the last five to seven, maybe even now 10 years, uh, a large majority of your FCPA violations come from third-party conduct those agents or other third parties, freight forwarders, for example, if you look at the panel Pina case, uh, third, third parties that are they're acting on behalf of the organization that's actually having their compliance program reviewed uh, with an eye towards whether it's effective or not and whether 
uh, charges may or may not be brought, or in the case of the SEC, uh, whether a civil uh, case would be brought or not. And so third-party management and uh, uh, is, is a key piece of uh, those prosecutions. Same goes for M&A activity. Uh, common practice uh, with many of these FCPA cases has been self-reporting. Uh, by organizations once they have completed an acquisition and they realize, uh-oh, our, our due diligence didn't catch this or our due diligence did catch this and now that we are, we still want to go forward with this, uh, with this acquisition or merger, we need to, to take this to our friends at department or at SEC and let them know about what we've discovered during during our due diligence. So these two topics are inextricably linked together, and they're also linked to the historical context of what the Department of Justice, and in particular uh, the fraud section of the criminal division, um, have faced over the last uh, decade and a half or two decades. And so uh, the the context is important. Um, And... I say this all because I've said this in the past. One of my quibbles, and it's not a huge quibble, but it is a quibble uh, with both the 2017 memo uh, and this revision of the memo, is this uh, focus, uh, if you will, on these sorts of prosecutions. Um, Because uh, although this is a minor quibble with regards to the the memo, I have a huge problem uh, historically uh, when I've been working with clients or, or otherwise talking to people about their compliance programs. And, uh, you know, still to this day, for example, if you go to the SCCE, uh, although the SCC is probably better about this than some um, uh, events, or you look online for compliance, a lot of the oxygen, a lot of the resources uh, for compliance still is really uh, intensely focused on anti-corruption. Now, that is not to say that anti-corruption is not an important risk and an important risk for many organizations and a top-tier risk for many organizations. But it is not the top-tier risk for every organization, and it is not the only risk. Uh, remember, uh, uh, one of the keys to this, uh, this new memo uh, is its uh, uh, reintegration, if you will, of talking about the risk-based approach uh, to constructing and maintaining a compliance program. Well, every organization's risk profile is different. And if you look at uh, a large organization uh, that operates internationally, then they probably will have uh, anti-corruption risk. But is that anti-corruption risk greater uh, and commands more uh, uh, more leverage of resources than, say, uh, risk of harassment when you have 50,000 people on staff. Uh, harassment uh, is more common. Uh, perhaps the severity of uh, an incident of harassment, you could make an argument, I guess, uh, that the severity, depending on the circumstances, uh, may not be as great as one incident of anti-corruption as far as how that's going to impact the enterprise. Um, and so a lot of this is, is risk assessment and risk balancing, uh, balancing resources. And, and I think that's important. And, I, and I, I'm spending a lot of time talking about this because I think it's an important thing for you to keep in mind. Because uh, in front of third-party due diligence, third-party management, and M&A uh, compliance 
is the notion that you still have a risk-based approach. And that means that all of this, the things I've talked about in the first four parts of this series, uh, the things that I will talk about as we finish up this series uh, discussing this memorandum, are all to be uh, uh, provisioned for and uh, looked through the lens of your own risk at your organization. Uh, and, and, I, and again, this is a quibble. It's a small quibble. Uh, and it's balanced out, uh, I think, fair, it's fair to say it's balanced out by some of the commentary. In fact, uh, the second sentence of Part E on page 6, uh, talking about third-party management, says, uh, the degree of appropriate due diligence may vary based on the size and nature of the company or transaction. Transaction Prosecutors should assess the extent to which the company has an understanding of the qualifi qualifications and associations of third-party partners, including agents, etc. Um, so th they qualify it with a qualifier we've seen since uh, the original sentencing guidelines for organizations, which is one size does not fit all, and they, and they recognize that. That's in the preamble of the uh, first page of this document, but then it's also reinforced here talking about third-party due diligence. The very first sentence uh, reinforces this notion of risk-based due diligence or uh, that uh, you need to have a uh, care and feeding and due diligence program for your third parties based on the risks that you faced, face uh, on, uh, because of the third parties and what they do or do not do on your behalf or uh, how that business relationship between those th that the organization and the third parties is constructed. So you have to look at the relationships, uh, make a determination. We've talked about uh, tiering risk before. Uh, you're going to have different tiers are different groups of uh, third parties that uh, pose risk based on uh, several factors, geographic region of the world, criticality of the service or relationship, uh, dollar spend, um, uh, nature of uh, the services and or products provided or exchanged. Uh, you're going to have to figure out what criteria you need to uh, put together to, to establish that risk. Um, but but you're going to have different buckets for sure uh, if you're going to take a risk-based approach here. And you're going to have different levels of scrutiny for both that due diligence process and that ongoing monitoring that you would under then undertake for those different groups of third parties. Uh, the second paragraph talks about the importance of knowing your third party or uh, KYC know, or KYT. P, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, understand uh, their reputation, their history, and how they fit into, particularly if you're talking about, and again, this is really focused, I think, to a great extent on uh, those agents or third parties in foreign jurisdictions uh, when, that might be interacting uh, on your behalf uh, with government officials and therefore uh, come up against the provisions of the FCPA and other anti-corruption laws. Um, and they give it a four instance here saying, a prosecutor should analyze whether a company has ensured that a co contract terms with third parties describe the services, that the third party is actually performing that work, and that the compensation is consistent uh, with what you'd expect uh, in that region. Um, this is interesting in that, uh, again, they're focusing on a kind of agent behavior, if you will, and making sure that uh, uh, you understand uh, the history 
and uh, uh, composition, if you will, of your of the third parties that you're operating with. And I think also another important thing that underlies a lot of this is understanding your business. Um, a, a good threshold question to ask any uh, business sponsor uh, within your organization that wants you <coughs> to approve the use of a third party, uh, whether that's an agent or another third party, is why? Why do we uh, need to uh, involve this person or this organization in this business transaction? Understanding the why uh, is uh, surprisingly often overlooked in this calculus, uh, but it, it, I think the things are changing, but it certainly should be the threshold question for any engagement of a third party, uh, and that would certainly be the expectation uh, in reviewing any process in place for, for onboarding or, or doing due diligence for third parties that uh, the department might look at. Uh, so that's going to look at, you know, who they are, what their history is, um, and uh, look at uh, what the understanding, the contract terms between uh, third parties and the organization might be. The last uh, sentence of the second paragraph under Part E talks about ongoing monitoring, uh, that it be uh, through updated due diligence, training, audits, and or annual compliance certifications by the third party. So they call out a couple of things here that are interesting. This is new uh, from the 2017 uh, uh, memo, which talked more generally about uh, monitoring and incentivizing compliance by third parties. This calls out some specific guidance around uh, updating due diligence, uh, training, uh, third parties. Uh, well, it says it says training, so um, one would assume that means training third parties, but that might be training everyone involved in the process, including those who manage these third party relationships. And I think that's a fair reading. And uh, also auditing and or annual compliance certifications by the third party. Um, I don't know exactly what those certifications might look like, how extensive they would need to be to be considered effective uh, under under any kind of standard, because there's not really any elaboration here. Um, and then also, uh, does audit mean having audit rights in your contract with your third party, which many organizations already have in place, or uh, actually performing audits? And I think uh, it's probably the uh, latter rather than the former. Uh, one thing that um, oh, when I'm engaged in program assessment review and I look at uh, third-party uh, care and feeding or third-party monitoring, and one of the questions I have is, uh, you know, the threshold question, which usually gets an answer yes, is do you have audit rights in your agreements with these third parties? And most organizations do. And it's like, okay, how many audits have you performed? <laughs> Uh, in the last uh, uh, three years? And what are the criteria for performing those audits? And uh, how, how does that happen? Uh, this is all, uh, I think, important stuff to establish that you actually have a credible uh, auditing process for your third parties. If you simply just have audit rights in your um, contracts, but you've never pulled the trigger, or you very rarely pull the trigger, or the criteria for pulling the trigger is unclear and inconsistent, I think that's, that's something you really need to look at. Uh, on that particular piece. Training, uh, we talked about before, training for third parties. And I, again, this just says training. So I think uh, it's fair to read that that's training not only for third parties, but for all those who would be involved in this process that would have some sort of 
uh, responsibility for the third party or some sort of management or oversight. That could include back office personnel who are reviewing uh, payment information to third parties. Uh, so it's training across the board, I think. And uh, training for third parties uh, is still something that most organizations do not provide, uh, but more and more organizations are doing it. Now, uh, there is, again, uh, our friends uh, from uh, the employment law section <laughs> sometimes push back on training and other things that might tend to look like uh, providing um, uh, 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 evidence of employment <laughs> uh, for people who are, are, are meant to be contractors or, or have another sort of uh, third-party arm's-length relationship with the organization. So you have to be careful about uh, how those things are done and make sure everybody is uh, uh, comfortable with how that's handled. But that is something that uh, more and more organizations are providing. Uh, usually some sort of supplier portal, ex uh, we're seeing these uh, sorts of things exist more frequently. That only includes some uh, basic training around anti-corruption and other topics of interest for those third parties and suppliers, but also uh, a supplier code or a vendor code or a third party code of conduct, which is a simplified version of those topics uh, that uh, we want to make sure that uh, third parties adhere to principles. Um, um, so, so it would be more than just training, I think, but, but uh, if you're looking at best practices, it would be providing uh, uh, some resources and some, some materials uh, that uh, the third party can leverage. Um, so take a look at what you have. Think about it. Think about how that fits in. This is new uh, to this guidance. Uh, so it's obviously something that the, that the department thought about and decided was important to include. Uh, for a best practices, or actually uh, a best practices program uh, that meets these would meet the uh, effective standard. So that's the preamble. I think the important stuff in the preamble of Part E. We still have our individual uh, queries uh, that are carried over, uh, for the most part, directly from the 2017 memo. Uh, the first query is, uh, is it a risk-based and integrated process? Well, we talked about that, and, you know, there's that admonishment in the first sentence of the preamble of this section. Um, you, have you gone through an, uh, a risk process to identify uh, where your third-party risk is and, and how to address that? Uh, how's that process been integrated into procurement and vendor management processes? Uh, that also really reiterates uh, a lot of the information in the first paragraph uh, about uh, how, um, uh, in particular, uh, distributors, uh, agents, and now we're talking specifically about procurement and vendors, uh, might be uh, involved in uh, not only anti-corruption and bribery, but, but other uh, risk issues that you need to evaluate and have a risk-based process to, to understand that and then uh, and, and then uh, presumably follow on to address it. Appropriate controls is the second query. How does the company ensure there's a business rationale for the use of third parties? I already talked about this. This is the one uh, threshold question that uh, I think has to be asked before uh, anything else, and that's why. Why are we doing business with this third party if we don't have a articulable, clear reason then that's not just a red flag. That's a whole field of red flags uh, as to 
uh, having a business relationship with that third party. We need to know why uh, they're involved, why they need to be involved, and how they fit into the business of uh, the organization. If third parties are involved in underlying misconduct, what was the business rationale for using those third parties? What mechanisms exist to ensure that the contract terms uh, that specifically describe the services to be performed, that the payment terms are appropriate, and that the described work is performed, and what compensation is commiserate with the services rendered? Again, this is kind of, it's interesting that the, 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 the initial paragraphs kind of, both the first and second paragraph kind of reiterate uh, this uh, same information. So it's obviously important to the department as they teased it out more in the narrative paragraph that's new here, the second paragraph. And that's, um, I think, in particular, uh, focusing on trying to determine what are the, uh, the elements, the criteria for determining risk here. Again, uh, geographic region of the world is uh, an is obvious one. It's you know tied a lot again to anti-corruption, but that's not the only one. And yours are and your yours are going to vary. Uh, but dollar spend is an important one. Uh, criticality of the service and or product to your operation or that part of the operation. Uh, regulatory oversight of the particular piece of business. Um, you know what. This is going to bring into bring into uh, the field of vision other potential third-party risk issues, such as import-export. Uh, if you are uh, a government contractor or you're dealing in uh, products and/or services that might uh, have some sort of export uh, uh, control issue involved, and then you know third parties can present the same sort of risks that your own organization would present for that particular um, that particular risk area, or any risk area for that matter. What about privacy? Uh, we're now living in the post-GDPR world. Uh, if you have third parties that are handling data, including customer data that may come from uh, a, a EU jurisdiction, for example, uh, are they compliant with those rules um, and, and, and laws? Uh, and if not, uh, you know, and how do you, and how do you address that in your due diligence process and your ongoing monitoring process for third parties? Uh, so I want to, I want you to think about this in much broader terms than what's laid out here again, because this is so focused on, uh, the kind of traditional, uh, third party due diligence through anti-corruption, but it, it, the, the, the third party risk that organizations face is much broader than that. And then the last one, again, uh, reiterated also up in the uh, preamble paragraphs, is about ongoing management of uh, third parties. And right here in black and white, it talks about uh, does the company have audit rights and have they exercised those audit rights? That's really, really key. And uh, how does the company train its third-party relationship managers about compliance risks? So if you have any question about whether that uh, uh, preamble paragraph uh, discussion about training applies to your people as well as uh, the third parties, uh, here it is. Um, and then lastly, how does the company incentivize compliance and ethical behavior by third parties? Well, uh, just as incentives are not well-defined within an organization, we don't have any real discussion here about what those incentives would be. 
Um, but uh, we need to think about it, right? Because here it is. It's saying it's going. This is a query uh, that the Department of Justice is suggesting that a prosecutor should ask when looking at your ongoing management of third parties. How have you incentivized uh, ethical behavior at that third party organization? Well, um, I think one way you can do that is uh, have really strong contractual terms about what they're going to do and not do. And if you provide resources, including training and other, um, uh, and, and, this, and, 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 ha and require an ongoing certification process, and they don't adhere to that, then the contract ends. No questions. Doesn't matter what the business operations people think about that, about the managers who, who uh, uh, own that relationship think about it. There ought to be some drop-dead um, um, requirements in those relationships uh, to incentivize uh, good behavior. Um, that's the negative incentive, which um, is really good. But one of the things that we puzzle over uh, when we talk about incentives generally for compliance is how do you construct positive incentives? Well, that's pretty, it's not easy to do, but it's easier to do when you have employees who have a, a goals that they have to meet, whether they're managers or rank and file, that you can create some objective criteria around to, to uh, incentivize that behavior just as you incentivize other behavior. Um, so this may be an area to be a little creative. Um, I think for many organizations, they haven't gotten down incentivizing compliance for their own people yet. Uh, so it may be a bridge too far to ask that we incentivize third-party behavior in a positive fashion, uh, but but it's worth thinking about. What what are some objective criteria that a third party could meet uh, that would then perhaps uh, uh, merit a bonus uh, payment of some sort, uh, for example? Um, I mean, I don't think that's outside the realm of uh, contemplation here, and certainly that would be in line with a positive reinforcement, a uh, positive um, uh, incentive for the third party. The last piece of the puzzle here, the last query, if you will, is uh, what's titled Real Actions and Consequences. Does the company track red flags uh, through due diligence and how are they addressed? Does the company keep track of third parties that do not pass due diligence and are terminated? Does the company take steps to ensure that those third parties are not hired or rehired? Uh, if third parties are involved in misconduct, uh, at issue an investigation were they identified for were their red flags identified and how this how was that handled and how was it resolved and uh, has a similar third party been suspended terminated or audited as uh, as a result of compliance issues this is all about I think what I would categorize as the necessity of having a zero tolerance policy and not allowing uh, business management operational management to have a veto. This is a hard one for some organizations, uh, and uh, but but I, you know, I know of some organizations that are, uh, and and in particular, these organizations are have had some problems in the past, so they are per perhaps more compliant to this than an organization that hasn't gone through this process. But if there are red flags uh, that come up in the due diligence process, you got to pass. And you got to be, and it's got to be a hard pass, and that decision uh, cannot sh or should not 
have the ability of being overruled by operations. That doesn't mean that there can't operations shouldn't have a seat at the table and should not have the opportunity to uh, perhaps uh, provide context that would make that red flag uh, explainable. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got to have some drop dead, uh, uh, zero tolerance understanding around due diligence in particular, uh, and also ongoing monitoring, um, perhaps for some, uh, violations, if you will, or red flags, uh, maybe there's, uh, an opportunity to cure, but for some, there's not. I mean, if you've got an organization, a third party that has had issues in the past, um, then you just, I think you kind of have to walk away. And I know of some organizations that will do that. You know, I know of some organizations that have wrapped up business completely in certain jurisdictions because they just don't want to operate in that jurisdiction because they can't do it or they have been unable to figure out a way of doing it without operating uh, in conjunction with third parties that they don't want to do business with. Um, this is a hard one, and, and, and I understand that it is, and, and we really strive as compliance professionals not to be the office of no and to be business-focused. Uh, but, um, you know, here it is in black and white. Um, there have to be real actions and real consequences. It's pretty straightforward, and I think that uh, uh, any organization that's put to, putting together a third-party due diligence and monitoring program uh, needs to hold the line there and not uh, be flexible. So now I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about uh, Part F, the last part of Part 1 of the new memo. We're finally going to get to Part 2 <laughs> in the next episode. Uh, and this talks about mergers and acquisitions. And again, as I mentioned at the top, I feel like this uh, really is, uh, again, you have to look at this through the lens of this being a prosecution-focused document and really focused uh, uh, historically on anti-corruption and uh, anti-corruption and other uh, um, uh, past bad acts, if you will, often come up during the M&A process, the due diligence process associated with, uh, with those sorts of, of, uh, uh, of uh, activities. And that's really um, where this comes from. The first paragraph here really is uh, a cautionary uh, uh, Warning. It's kind of interesting in the way it's phrased. It uh, says that a well-designed program should detect uh, uh, potential misconduct in an M&A target and flawed or incompetent or incomplete, rather. Flawed or incomplete could be incompetent, too, perhaps. Flawed or incomplete uh, due diligence can allow misconduct to continue at a target company, causing resulting harm to a business uh, business's profitability and reputation and risking civil and criminal liability. So it's just really... A shot across the bow saying, uh, do uh, competent, uh, competent and, uh, or, sorry, uh, complete and, incom- and, uh, and, and unflawed due diligence. I keep wanting to say incompetent, but it does, uh, but it's, uh, I think that that uh, is, I think, patently evident. And most organizations, I think, at least aspire to do uh, complete uh, due diligence that is catching everything. Uh, there are obviously um, pre-merger, uh, pre-acquisition uh, due diligence is limited. And you, as an organization, uh, have uh, your visibility is not 100%. Uh, you just have to do the best you can. I think that you just need to be able to defend your M&A uh, due diligence pre-acquisition uh, 
uh, due diligence process. And as soon as the deal closes, do a complete and thorough um, uh, comb through at that point as well, because that still gives you the opportunity to say, oh, you know, we did what we could beforehand. This was something that was buried in a way uh, because of the, our limited view we couldn't see. We see it now, and here it is. Um, as I mentioned at the top of this conversation, uh, this again comes from the historical context where many organizations often find these things out during this process, either during, during the due diligence process or soon after close, and then subsequently have to uh, walk these allegations uh, across the threshold at the fraud section or the U.S. Attorney's Office or the SEC. So, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, most organizations that are engaged in uh, M&A activity or mature enough to be doing that uh, at, a, at a high level have a pretty sophisticated due diligence process in place, or at least should. And then there's a second paragraph, which is kind of interesting in saying that the extent to which a company subjects its acquisition targets to appropriate scrutiny is indicative of whether its compliance program is, as implemented, able to effectively enforce internal controls and remediate misconduct at all levels of the organization. So what they're saying here, which is interesting, and this is, again, new, this is a new paragraph, is that if you have a failure in your uh, due diligence process during acquisition, uh, that might show that uh, or, or is indicative of having a, uh, an ineffective compliance program. So uh, what this tells me, which is something we've been talking about for a long time, is if compliance doesn't have a real seat at the table and is not involved actively with the deal team, that is, uh, under, is undertaking an acquisition or merger, then how can it be effective? Compliance needs to be involved. Compli the compliance function has to be involved. And here it is right here in black and white. Uh, if there's a failure in that process of due diligence, that's going to be deemed a failure of the compliance, compliance program. Well, how can uh, the compliance program but fail if they're not involved in the process? So if you uh, or your compliance program in your organization does not have a seat uh, and is not involved in this process from the very beginning, uh, when targets are identified and you're going through the due diligence process and, and trying to put these deals together, then that is potentially a failure right there. And if you weren't sure about that, uh, the second query uh, holdover from the holdover from uh, the 2017 memo, integration in the M&A process. Uh, has the compliance function been integrated into the merger acquisition and integration process? There it is. You, you know, you just can't avoid it. Uh, the other two queries, uh, due diligence process, was the misconduct or the risk of misconduct identified during due diligence? Who conducted the risk review? of the acquired merged entities and how was it done? So they're gonna look into your process as we discussed. And uh, what is the M&A due diligence process generally? So you got to you know, have um, a consistent process uh, for doing this sort of risk review uh, and due diligence and you need to document it. 
And then the third and last query that we're going to talk about today is process connecting due diligence to implementation. What has been the company's process for tracking and remediating misconduct or misconduct risks identified during the due diligence process? What has been the company's process for implementing compliance policies and procedures at new entities? So again, how can the compliance function do this? How can they in integrate and implement if they aren't involved in the process and setting it up from the very beginning? Uh, so uh, part F here on page eight, uh, take a close look at it. Again, if you're a compliance function, if you're responsible for it at your organization and you don't, uh, you, you don't have any uh, interface or integration with the deal team until after close uh, or at a, at a later date uh, after due diligence has been conducted and the deal has already been inked, so to speak, then um, I don't think that's consistent with what the, with the guidance that we're getting uh, from the Department of Justice here on what's appropriate, and that and and that's going all the way back to the to the queries from 2017. So that's uh, uh, parts uh, E and F of part one. Uh, on our next episode, part six, part seven, we're already up to seven. Uh, we're going to start talking about part two of the memorandum. Uh, which is uh, talking about another really, really key piece of the puzzle, and that's implementation. Uh, and that's where we're going to look at, look at the action and responsibility and resources for those involved in the process. So please tune in for part seven. Hope to have that up in the next few days. As always, please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, it really makes a difference to us. Um, I'm always looking for... Uh, any kind of commentary that you might have, any kind of suggestions that you might have, uh, questions you might have for us, uh, compliancebeat.com, uh, moreheadconsulting.com. And uh, you can always email, direct, email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Uh, as I've been mentioning in the last couple of uh, editions of this special, po special series podcast, uh, my friend Ryan McConnell and his team have put together a really excellent uh, comparison memo uh, that looks at the differences between the 2017 version of this memo and the updated version. Uh, that's available on, on his website, and there'll be a link uh, in this uh, podcast in the podcast notes for this episode uh, for you to take a look at that. Uh, that'll help you kind of parse through uh, this expanded and updated memo. And so until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.